Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today begins episode three of Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, and I'm joined again by my fabulous reading partner, Faiza Parvez. Hi, Faiza. Hi, Amy. Excited to be back. <laughs> it's so great to see you again, and I'm excited to dive in. If you've been listening um, through the first and second episodes, we've tackled um, a few different chapters of Simone de Beauvoir's masterpiece, The Second Sex. We've talked about various chapters and compared them to other texts and talked about existentialism and kind of drawn out some issues that we've encountered in our own lives. And And today is going to be our final episode on this book. So Fize is going to talk about a chapter that's titled The Mother and a chapter called woman's situation and character. And then we will wrap up by talking about just our personal takeaways and some conclusions that we've drawn from this work. So Faiza, if you want to take it away with the chapter, The Mother. Yes. And I'm really excited to discuss this chapter, The Mother, because we both are moms. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Amy, you're a mom of four. So I know you will have a lot to share uh, with regard to this chapter. And I'm a new mom of now a one-year-old. So as I was reading this, I could really resonate with a lot of what Beauvoir uh, is saying in this chapter. So I'm really excited to discuss this with you. And uh, when I first, I mean, I read this chapter many times and every time I was just surprised with how much in depth she goes to understand the psychology of a mother or what a woman goes through, um, you know, after giving birth and during this whole process, the, you know, th- how divided she feels between being a mom, being a wife, being, you know, part of social life and, and, you know, wanting to work. And I was like, wow, that's exactly how I have been feeling. And so I was really impressed with, with, you know, uh, the topics that Beauvoir covers in this chapter. And, uh, and, and for the part that she not even you know never had children so I thought you know she really analyzes the the women condition very well so I'm I'm really looking forward to discussing this and and the other question you know when I first read it I was really surprised as to why she begins the way she begins Uh, she begins this chapter by talking about abortion right and and you would think that's you know, exactly the opposite of motherhood, right? The, and not wanting to be a mom. And I was just like, why does she, you know, begin this way? And and for a few times, it actually put me off, uh, you know, from reading ahead because I was just so upset that she's talking about, um, you know, especially after I became a mom, I was like, oh, why is she talking about abortion and, and forced motherhood and, and this, you know, bringing mis- children that are miserable? <laughs> and that was just making me more upset. And then I sort of understood, you know, why she begins where she does. And and sort of she's trying to not, you know, she doesn't really give a a Christian or or any, you know, sort of point of view about this, but she's talking about how the women woman is perceived in our world. Like she is particularly perceived as a tool to bring about children. And her own health is not really considered at all, you know, in such cases. So more importance is given to the child, to this unborn child, rather than the woman. And that was really, you know, once I understood it from that point of view, it was really revealing to me. And and really, I, I started to think, yeah, every time we discuss about abortion, we never really talk about the cases where the woman's life may be in danger, right? I mean, anytime there is a discussion on abortion, there are two cases. One case is 
Um, you know, Democrats talk about early abortion, right, where a woman is probably forced into motherhood or, or um, you know, didn't want the child and she aborts within the first month of pregnancy. And the Republicans always talk about the third trimester where people are taking babies out and what are they doing, right? And so they're not really discussing the same thing because pregnancy is very different when it's, you know, early uh, first trimester versus the third trimester. And, and then also pregnancy for a woman, like when, especially in the case when her health is in danger what what do you choose do you choose the baby or do you choose the mother so in her case Bouvard's case she's talking about the woman and she's making the case for the woman and saying that you know we should actually consider um you know whether what the woman feels in this instance and and should care about her health and this is why I think she begins with abortion and and another thing she really you know points out is the hypocrisy of the male and and this is really interesting because she says that men will say oh, abortion you know i'm completely against it it is repugnant it's a crime it's indecent why would you know a woman even do it and on the other hand if they impregnate a woman without marrying her they'll tell her oh take care of it you know mm-hmm. and and so you know so so that was really interesting to me she says that in france Every year, I mean, she doesn't really give, you know, statistics, uh, but she says, you know, that in France, every year, there are as many abortions as their birth. So, so, you know, obviously, the woman herself is not uh, alone in making this baby, the man plays a part, but he sort of like, you know, stays away from, from the case when he does um, put a woman in a situation where she has to choose, she makes it her burden. Faiza, can I make a comment there? Um, we so the episode a couple of episodes ago I discussed with my reading partner um, Margaret Sanger and birth control and I would just say if any listeners haven't listened to that episode one thing that we mentioned on that episode was this really really insightful blog post by Gabrielle Blair mm. um, it's she called it's it's a Twitter thread actually and she I think she just calls it my Twitter thread on abortion Gabrielle Blair is a really famous blogger in the world of design her mm. blog name or her I guess her like professional name is design mom and the whole thread was about men's what she calls irresponsible ejaculations and she mm. talks about every single unwanted pregnancy is caused by a male. So why do we not hold males accountable for their part in creating these these problems that we think of as being a woman's problem? It's not. And, and if an unwanted pregnancy either becomes an abortion or it becomes a baby that wasn't planned for and that isn't able to be, you know, taken care of by the parents. So often that becomes society's burden. So just to your point about men saying like, no, you can't do that. Or, you know, if, if it's too inconvenient for them, then they'll say, yeah, you take care of it. I kind of don't, I don't want to know about it basically. <laughs> and the unfairness and the hypocrisy of men who would put women in that position when it's actually caused by their own irresponsibility. Yeah, their own actions. And that's just not even talked about. And it's really interesting because, you know, the woman is always shown as a seductress. But it's mm. always the opposite case. Aren't the women who are seduced? I mean, yeah. they're the so ones who often. are uh, all the time. It's the women who are seduced, I, I would say. And and the man sort of, you know, realizes after he's done the act that, oh, maybe I made a mistake. And now, you know, just get rid of her. So I feel like, uh, you know, that's what she's sort of talking about. 
And um, so, yeah, so she says that this is a quote from her, like men universally forbid abortion, but they accept it individually as a convenient solution. They can contradict themselves with dizzying cynicism. So, you know, she is, is seeing this and, and pointing this out. And what she says then is that birth control and legal abortion would then allow women to control their pregnancies more freely. So she wants to give control to the women. And, and she sort of says, uh, you know, talks about why is abortion abhorred. And she said it's because it's considered a dangerous operation. And, and she says that, no, it's not dangerous anymore, that, you know, now abortion is performed by competent specialists in a clinic with proper preventative measure. And so there's no dangers involved. And, you know, women should not be afraid and such. So I thought it was interesting that she does not bring out uh, that, you know, abortion is uh, seen repugnant because of religious reasons and sees it shows it more from a medical perspective so maybe she's also trying to tell the women that you know it's a safe operation don't be afraid if if you need to go through this um but but take control of your of your pregnancy and your body and don't let the women men dictate uh, what to do so i thought that was interesting and so that sort of sets the premise of this chapter where she wants to demystify motherhood and present women's own experiences of pregnancy, including an experience of abortion or an experience of unwanted motherhood. And, and, you know, all the difficulty that is involved with being a mother, the complexity and the ambivalence of being a mother. So, yeah, so this is what, you know, so this kind of sets the tone for the chapter where she wants the women to be in control. And she will showcase how various ways women sort of lose themselves in being a mother or being taken in by being a mother and not having control of their body and their, um, you know, mental health. So then, you know, we were talking a lot about transcendence, right? We were talking about, you know, in our first episode, we said, well, the men, they achieve transcendence through their work, but the women, they don't through this, the work that is motherhood does not give them transcendence. And it's really interesting because, you know, I said, oh, this is so wrong. Uh, women do change. They do, you know, experience something uh, like a rebirth or renewal of themselves through uh, childbirth. And it's, and I, and I thought, oh, you know, why doesn't Bouvar talk about this? Well, in the motherhood chapter, she does talk about this. I was like, all right, she covers every single aspect. Um, <laughs> she says that a woman does transcend herself, her body, especially, uh, you know, especially with the nausea and the discomfort. And it's something, you know, something really big is happening to her. Uh, so, so, you know, so there's a subject, there's the object disappears and, and she, the child swells within her and the new life submerges and, and all this happens to her, you know, it's his anguish, but there's also freedom. Uh, she is in this ambivalent reality. Her body is finally her own uh, since the child now belongs to her and society recognizes this, this possession of her with the sacred character. Her breast, which was previously an erotic object, is now the source of life. And, you know, so she is now like Mary with, you know, begging her son to save humanity. And so there is this sort of transcendence that happens to the woman. But however, Bouvard thinks this is all an illusion, which I thought was, you know, an interesting twist. And the reason why she says it is because she thinks that the woman does not really make the child. It is made in her. Her flesh only engenders flesh. She is incapable of founding an existence that will have to found itself. Creation that springs from freed freedom posits the object as a value and endows it with necessity. 
So, and, and then, you know, she says that this child will tomorrow grow on to be his own person. She engenders him in her body, but then she doesn't control his existence. He's going to be something else. So I thought that was really, you know, interesting, but at the same time, a bit, um, a bit sad. <laughs> and mm. and she says that, you know, this is something that the woman, the reason why she doesn't uh, achieve transcendence through pregnancy, motherhood is because she doesn't control the child. And, and yeah, so I was, I was sort of torn with this, you know, um, maybe because back in her time, this was all the woman's role. The woman's role was children, but now we have taken a lot more many roles, right? We have a more women do have richer life and maybe so we're not so reliant on just our children for our source of um, growth. And, and maybe that's why I was sort of sad to, or I couldn't really understand why the woman would, you know, want to control her child in this way or be this possessive person who, um, you know, this is her only thing and there's nothing else in her life. So maybe I feel like Beauvoir is trying to make the case that the women, you know, the Freudian term, they, they develop mental issues because of this, you know, subjecting them just to be a mother because it's not fulfilling in the long term. I mean, fulfilling it is, but but in the long term, it it is not something she can truly control. And like men, they have a project they have their work, they have their outside life that they have fully control over. But for woman's case, she doesn't have that opportunity. So which is why, you know, she suffers from all these uh, alienation and, and, and issues. Hence, the child is not really the, the thing that gives her the transcendence. So, so I thought, you know, I don't know, I'm still like, baffling through these concepts <laughs> that um, because she even says that you know when a woman goes through nausea this is a way like when she vomits it's a way that she wants her body's rejecting the child I mean yeah. she, says, she says like to quote someone like you know this I don't know these are like really uh, interesting theories that are presented but but it's at least they're trying to understand the women condition in this in this uh, period of time like, why are the women suffering the way they are? And maybe it is because of how they are being portrayed as only mothers, only their role being taking care of children. And that is all. Yeah, I, I, I don't, did you roll your eyes when you read that part about them vomiting? Because like morning sickness is caused by the mother rejecting the child. It, that did make me kind of chuckle. <laughs> yeah, I almost um, put like hmm, dubious claim, like where right, is the scientific totally. reason for this? But I think, yes. like, I think like that's what I feel like it was very Freudian in the sense yeah, that they're looking at, uh, uh, you know, symptoms. Like, you know, for Freud, you look at the symptoms and, and you see a woman cannot, uh, you know, swallow water okay why cannot she swallow water oh let's link it to her father who you know exactly blah 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 so so you know it's something like that she's trying to see the symptoms of vomiting and then linking it to psychoanalysis like okay this must be something with her own relationship with her mother or being a mother or being this child and and I really want to you know like these are just such fascinating topics and I thought the audience would really enjoy reading Beauvoir's short story collection called The Woman Destroyed, and I had sort of mentioned it in a previous episode as well, which actually looks at these similar uh, instances and, and creates stories about them. Like, you know, her theories on motherhood and marriage are exhibited in, um, in this story collection. 
And there's this one story that is that is called The Age of Discretion. And it centers on a professor of science in her early 60s, dealing with the prospect of aging, her marriage, and most importantly, her relationship with her son, who recently, you know, had been married. And she, you know, the the professor herself is, is shown to be happily married to a kind and supporting supportive husband and she is working on a book and follow up to you know she has had several successes uh, you know published books before and despite the fact she's still disturbed that her son is grown up and now is more loyal to his wife than herself and uh, and she explains that she went through a wretched period some years before disgusted by her body due to the fact that her son had grown up And uh, so she felt really hollow inside. And so what she does is she goes and begins a new book. And then she works on her thesis, uh, you know, for the book, something, a topic of her own choosing that she finally feels herself again. And so we see this, you know, connected feelings, interconnected feelings between the mother and the child and the mother also trying to find her own self through her work and not just relying on her son. But but even despite all of that, you know, in this short story, we see that the mother is still reliant a lot on her own personal success through her son. And even though her husband is kind and, and nice and, and, you know, supportive, she still doesn't share many uh, and, 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 you know, interests with him. She treats more her son like her partner than her husband. And uh, once, you know, in the short story, her son observes that she has gained weight and she immediately goes to remedy the situation and goes on a diet and buys scales. And and then when she loses the weight the, and, and, you know, the son doesn't notice, she gets again depressed. Like, why didn't he notice I had gained? I lost it for him. And then at some point in the story, her son goes and decides to uh, become a partner um, in her wife's father's uh, firm or something. And she gets upset, really upset that the son had not discussed it with her and asked her for advice and had just, you know, gone with his wife and, and you know, decided to do this on her own and without consulting her. So anger fills her up and she doesn't understand what's going on. And so, so yeah, so she realizes that the wife has come to replace her. And she sort of talks about, you know, the time when she used to be alone with her son. So it, it's it's a really interesting short story and sort of uh, parallel to, you know, this chapter where she says how women attach themselves so deeply to their children that when the children want to have their own life, the women don't know what to do. And in this case, even when a woman is a professor and has her own life, she still cannot detach herself from her son. So I would really like uh, urge people to go, you know, read, uh, the, especially if you want to see her theories in how she applies them to life to go read this short story collection the woman destroyed so yes go ahead i was just gonna say i don't i don't know about you faiza but i know so many women who have really struggled with that i mean that short story that you just summarized and described sounds like conversations i have literally had with with (laughs) women who i mean maybe even through being in therapy have discovered that they're overly psychologically enmeshed with their children and that they their children have almost replaced um their relationships with their spouses in in intimacy not not like inappropriate physical intimacy but in emotional intimacy and um, i think that's really hard for a lot of women if they are like we've talked about before, if they're discouraged from pursuing their own 
careers, their own intellectual pursuits, if everything that they have to offer in life, if every gift that they have to give is channeled into this one relationship, it's really hard for that relationship to stay healthy, right? And I know even even mothers who who don't become enmeshed or kind of dysfunctional in their relationship with with their kids, they still a lot of my like my mom's generation and her friends. And even as I'm getting older, I have friends who are slightly older than I am who are, you know, their kids are starting to leave home and they are just despondent and depressed and don't even know what the meaning of their life is anymore. And I would say that's a, it is a real downside. And I don't, I was going to say, I don't disparage women who stay home with their kids. I I have stayed home with my kids, as you know, like I have not had a career and I have mixed feelings about that, but I certainly um, if if there's a woman who says, yeah, I could have done everything, anything I wanted. I had all the options available to me. I knew I could work while I had kids and I would have not felt guilty about it, but I chose to stay home with my kids. I think that is a perfectly valid choice. Beauvoir doesn't, by the way. She had a conversation with Betty Friedan later that where Betty Friedan said, is that a valid choice to, to stay home and raise children? And Beauvoir says, no, it's not. And I disagree. I think I think I I don't know what I would have done had I grown up knowing that I could do both or knowing that there were lots and lots of different ways to make it work, lots and lots of different options. I didn't know that. I only had the option of being a mother. That was the only one that was presented to me as an acceptable moral choice. However, with all of that said, I I may have chosen to stay home. Um, with my kids, because I treasure that time, especially, you know, at certain ages that they are very attached to their mom and and I wanted to be with them. But that's one of the real um, downsides, or I don't know that I would say downsides, I guess it's something to look out for, that if that's what you're going to do with your adult life, the prime years of your life, just know that it is going to end and they do become their own adults, they do move on. And that can be a really, really difficult transition um, once they do grow up. And and I also just think it it really sets you up for having an unequal relationship with your partner in a marriage, right? If he, hopefully, or if, if the spouse is equally invested in those children, I just look at my own marriage. My, my husband is as close with our children as I am. We are, the six of us are like a little gang of buddies. We are just the the best of friends. And yet my husband has been able to have a career all the way through. And so, I mean, I, I've kept some of my own intellectual pursuits going and now I'm doing a lot more now that they're older, but it's wise as a woman to keep something going that keeps you yourself alive because eventually those kids do grow up and it can become very emotionally unhealthy. Right. So in both cases, you're right, Amy. So if you are disconnected from your child from the beginning, you, you know, will have obviously more problems as they grow older, right? They'll, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how it turns out for people. I mean, but, but also if you are way too much attached to them and then they want to be their own person. So both cases, you know, you'll have problems. You have to find that balance where Mm -hmm. what, what you have described that you're able to, you know, um, both you and your husband have your own pursuits and, you know, be connected to your children and help them through their own life transitions. So they also listen to you and and take your advice and not 
say, well, you were never in my life. Why do you want to come and tell me now? So, you know, so that's something I fear as well. Uh, you know, like I do want to be in my son's life and um, and not be like fully just out in the world and, and him being raised by who knows what and what are they teaching mm -hmm. him? Are they even imbibing the values that I want him, you know, to to have? So, so, so those are like some concerns, which is why I want to also be involved in his life and be there for him. And I think like with Beauvoir, she's sort of under, I mean, of course she wants, you know, this is a period where women were not given the opportunity to go and work outside. So I think that's why she's sort of more pushing for like, yes, women should, you know, like you said that mm -hmm. she had that quote that there should be, an, shouldn't be an option. But I think she does realize that women are now being told to do everything. And that's impossible. Mm -hmm. You cannot be the best mom at home raising your, you know, three, four kids and putting all the work at the, the, the materialistic culture demands or the corporate world demands of, of, a, of a worker. And, and then, you know, you cannot do that. I mean, for both men and women, they cannot do that. And she says it, and I'll quote this. She says, if too often today, a woman has a hard time reconciling the interests of her children with a profession that demands long hours away from home and all her strength, it is because on the one hand, women's work is still too often a kind of slavery. On the other hand, no effort has been made to ensure children's health, care, and education outside the home. This is social neglect. What I think is both men and women, to give them a break from this corporate world or whatever work world, to spend time with their families and uh, make it easy for them to then transition again if they want to go back full time, right? I think what we've made, it, we've made it so hard that it's become like a choice then, then the woman takes, right? Like, okay, I will give up my career. I will go part-time. And then, you know, they know that it's going to be very difficult to get back to uh, workforce. So I think that's something we need to understand how our society needs to understand how we can make that transition better. And I think once we do that, or make that transition easier, I think we'll have more people, um, both men and women, who will take time to spend, you know, with their family, because they know that it's not a penalty that they're paying for on their career. Right. So, so yeah, so I think that's what Bouvard is trying to say, that there is social neglect on this part, and we still need to work, you know, on these things. So, yeah, so then she goes on to talk about the woman as a divided you know, being okay, like, you know, we just talked about whether it is work, or does she want children? What does she want to do? And, and she says, you know, when we we're talking about transcendence, she says that motherhood has not given us, um, you know, she doesn't think that motherhood is what helps transcend women, because, you know, because of the fact that we can become mothers has not given us equal status in society, for example, becoming a mother is not how women gain their right to vote right? Mm -hmm. uh, has, they haven't gone any, you know, social benefits because they are a mother. They had to fight for those rights. It is only through marriage that a mother is glorified. In other words, as long as she's subordinate to the husband, as long as he is the economic head of the family, even though she, it is she who cares for the children, they depend far more on him than on her. Because, mm -hmm. you know, like we're saying that we've made the outside work becomes much more important than the domestic world, uh, domestic life. And this is what she's saying, that the mother's relationship with her children is influenced by the one she maintains with her husband. So mm -hmm. if she does not have a good relationship with her husband, then her, you know, domestic life is also not, uh, is affected, and especially her relationship with 
her children. Okay, so this next part that I'm going to say, I just like chuckled because we still have, you know, the same problems. And I would really want your thoughts on this, Amy. So she goes on to talk about women's magazines and how they advise women on how to be. So they say, women magazines amply advise the housewife on the art of maintaining her sexual attraction while doing the dishes and remaining elegant throughout her pregnancy, of reconciling flirtation, motherhood and economy. Uh, but she says that if women follow this advice of these magazines, they really they will soon be overwhelmed and disfigured by the care. It was difficult to remain desirable with chapped hands and a body deformed by pregnancies. Uh, this is why a woman in love often feels resentment of the children who ruin her seduction and deprive her of her husband's caresses. So I thought, you know, this uh, this sort of... Uh, influence of media you know we still sort of see it right the hot mom or or you know look she gained really only two pounds in her pregnancy or only her belly got big and look I tone this way or that or lose all the weight quickly and be you know your pre-body shape pre-pregnancy body shape again and all these pressures that we put on women or or you know we I mean like I was you know before giving birth was following all these uh you there's a you know, YouTube uh, pregnancy vlogs, uh, videos on on women that have perfectly blow dried hair and and they're and they're you know show they're they're taping themselves giving birth like you know it's the the whole blog is like oh look I'm packed my bag I'm going to the hospital oh birth was so nice look now I'm we're taking photographs and I thought this is how it would be for me and my experience was <laughs> so I went in a shock like you know I literally couldn't even get up forget about blow drying my hair or showering I was in the same dirty clothes like <laughs> and I was so I was like what you know this is completely different from how it is portrayed on social media on these moms that are you know uh, influencer moms or whatever with their babies and then you know they just bring their baby home from the hospital and they're wearing their tight fitted jeans and I couldn't even Mm -hmm. fit into my nightgown forget about jeans you know it took a year to, to to get into those and uh yeah so it's it's really interesting on and we were talking about this on and then you know help is never shown like you know on yes. instagram or or on social media these women they're like fully made up and then they have and they're nursing their you know one month old baby and i was like i didn't even i still don't even have time to comb my hair let alone like do my hair and makeup and i and they're like look my baby's just sleeping in the crib and i pick it up and i nurse it and then i tap it three times and goes back to sleep and I was like how does that magic and I was just getting so depressed you know because I was like how is that how is their baby so good at this you know and my baby is just all the time screaming or crying or I'm trying to burp it and it's not burping and and it was just a mess that whole experience and and so we sort of you know our our uh, media portrays motherhood in a very different way than what is real and and we are very reluctant to show help or to show nannies or to show um you know other people that are taking care of the child while the mother can do other things and especially with you know women who work as well you know I was uh, discussing this with with one woman who's like oh you know my kids know that I'm available to them on Saturday Saturdays is my day with them otherwise you know mommy is working she's going here and there and I'm like well somebody must be taking care of those children while you're going here and there how come that's never mentioned and all this is you know my husband is an equal partner like but husband is working too so it's I mean even if you're an equal partner what about the help like the help is just you know never sort of spoken of 
And I don't know if it's an American culture thing or, or what it is that you, we want to showcase that we're doing it all by ourselves and no one is helping us and we, we look amazing. And, you know, at the same time, we're raising like all these kids and our home is beautiful and it's yeah. Instagram ready, you know, for photos and all of that. And I think that's sort of like this marketing or advertising something that doesn't really exist. So I don't know what you think about it, Amy. Well, I have a, well, first I have, I have a couple of thoughts, but first my question is, do you, is that different outside the United States since you were raised in a different country? Do you see that as a, as kind of uniquely American? Yeah. I mean, at least in Pakistan, I know, I mean, my mom raised us, uh, by herself I mean, she had help in the home it's not that she didn't have help but at least you know the the mothering part she did ourselves but in uh, my husband is from Lebanon in Beirut every time we go uh, you know there people like to have lots of children and I also see the they, they like to take their help with them wherever they go like even if they go to a mm. restaurant with their children the maid will be the nanny or the maid will be there which is also kind of odd and and they're like the maids and the nannies wear uniform it's actually and they're from not from lebanon they're usually from another country like either sri lanka or ethiopia or philippines which is also kind of interesting and you will always see like you know, the madam, the madame, you know, walking in the front and the nanny with the three kids in the back, you know, in the mall. It, it's really odd. Like, to see, and you never yeah. see that here, but you see that there. And um, so, yeah, people do. It, it's a different cultural thing. Like people want to show off their, uh, yeah. their help. And that's the same in Pakistan, too. The more, uh, you know, wealthier you are, you want to show like I have all this, you know, help right. with me and my whole brigade goes with me wherever I go. And um, so, so yeah, but here, I think it's less of, of that. Um, I think in India, Pakistan, like in that part of the world, people do like to show help more. Here, we don't want to show help. But of course, we have a lot of help. We are the wealthiest right. nations. <laughs> we have a lot of help, but somehow we don't want to show it. We want to, Angelina Jolie wants to show her carrying all her like five children in her arms walking through the airport, which is like, okay, is, you know, is that reality? I don't think so. Or Kim Kardashian with her four kids, you know, by herself at vacation while she is fully made up wearing the tightest right. dress ever, wearing the fakest nails ever, all that makeup and, you know, raising the four carrying the four children on by herself. So that's the image we want to showcase of women. And uh, and why is that? I don't know. What do you think, Amy? Why is it? Well, I don't, I mean, the, yeah, there's a lot to talk about. I mean, we could talk for a long time about the classism, right? And I do think it's that is really interesting to hear about other countries that they don't have, well, not only that they don't have shame about bringing the help, but that it is kind of a status symbol that they can afford to hire help. And that they're, you know, that the um, nanny or whatever other helper they have is wearing a uniform. To me, that's that is kind of distressing to think of it being that obviously stratus or stratified of like the classes. But then I think, well, it's maybe worse in America that we do the same thing, but we don't acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. And and what I think of is like something that future thinkers will point out, like as we get farther into the 20th century, that that feminists will start pointing out um, how hypocritical it is for wealthy women. And, and I guess in the United States, typically white women who are wealthy saying, okay, great. Now I have all of this status and power that I didn't have before. I can work outside the home. I can hire help. But then they don't take care 
to think, well, what about that nanny who's taking care of my children? She's a woman too. Does she have the opportunities to obtain an education? Does she have the opportunity to, you know, reach her potential? What does she want to be doing for her life? And so I think wealthy white women in the can tend to be focused forward on like, I want all of the opportunities and all of the privileges that men have. And then they don't look around them to say to, to at other women who aren't enjoying the same privileges and opportunities that they have too. And so that blindness will be pointed out, I guess, in, in future episodes with future thinkers that I think Beauvoir doesn't, that's a bit of a blind spot for her mm. and is a is still a blind spot for many people in our culture mm. currently. I So that was one thought I had. Another episode that will be coming up is the book called The Beauty Myth, when you were talking about mm. all of this pressure to like, always look perfect and and always have your children look perfect and always have your career presented perfectly. I, I think social media is such a minefield, especially, I mean, I, I don't just think that we all know it is. We've all seen the data. We've all read, you know, books and articles on this, especially for girls and women. I feel like the portrayal of perfection is so dangerous and damaging. And it starts at a younger and younger age for girls on social media all the time. So I'm going to, maybe I'll punt that issue and that question to a slightly later episode when we're going to read the beauty myth, because mm-hmm. that's when it, then we'll, we'll really dive in on that topic later. So, but really, really great questions to bring up that are already present in the forties when Beauvoir is writing this and that, that you just brought out. So yeah, another, another thing with help is that, and at least, you know, this is just from my experience, and and we are also in California, uh, you know, trying to look for nannies or just asking people who they have as nannies. And it turns out most of the women working as nannies are Hispanic or Latinos. Yep. So I, I thought that's also very interesting and something, you know, mm-hmm. like you mentioned later, we would talk about, you know, why is that the case? And what about their own children and their own families? And, you know, talking to some of them, and they said, oh, you know, then my mom is coming and taking care of my children. Well, I'll come and do yours. And I thought right. you know, that's also very interesting. Um, yeah. Or or some of them like have been with families for 20 years, raised their children since they were one and now they're 20 or, you know. So I thought that's also interesting that they are actually part of the families and uh, are the main support for the families. But then when they grow up, then, OK, what to do now I have to find another family and then spend more. Right. So it's it's also a very interesting experience. I was thinking about it. But I think that's something definitely scholars and researchers would sort of uh, delve more into to discuss this class and social system that is put in place, um, you know, when we don't have early childhood care available. Mm -hmm. And it's in this form of uh, these women who are helping us from, you know, Hispanic backgrounds. So that's right. And like, and like you mentioned, I mean, it just depends where you live in Lebanon. It sounds like there are certain countries there too, right? That from, you know, um, people coming from environments that are less privileged that are looking for work, right? And I think that's just no matter where we live, something that we always have to be on the lookout for. That is, we are trying to live our best lives, that we're always making sure that if if we want to live in a more just society, then that has to mean everybody, mm-hmm. that we're looking out for everybody's opportunities. Just something to always keep on our minds, I guess. So. All right. So now uh, moving on to uh, women's situation and character. And I feel like this chapter is mostly just 
Beauvoir summing up, you know, the what she wants to say about the woman in self. Um, so in the opening lines, she says of this chapter, she says that there's a lot of indictments that have been made against women, um, you know, that the women, they remain same, they are superficial, they wallow in eminence, a woman is argumentative, woman is cautious and petty, she lacks morality, she's vulgar, self-serving, selfish, she's a liar, she's an actress. She. These are the terms that men have uh, uh, said about women. And, and you know, Bouvard talks in, in throughout the book, she sort of give references of writers and philosophers since the time of Greeks who have dismissed women as not being intellectually capable of a man because of these reasons. And, and Bouvard's project is to show basically that these type of behaviors are not sort of, you know, inherent. These are more dictated. These are not by her hormones, but these are something that is suggested from society. So she's trying to say that that woman's situation is not a result of her character, rather that a character is a result of her situation. Has you know, if a woman is considered mediocre, complacent, if she's considered someone who lacks accomplishment, is lazy, is passive, all these qualities are consequences of her subordination and are not the cause. So I think mm-hmm. that's what basically she wants to say that, um, you know, when when you were the first line, like you are, uh, you know, how do you become a woman? Like, what is it to be a woman? And it is because of the society that is made woman to be this particular way or wants woman to be this particular way, which is why she is this way. <laughs> which mm-hmm. is why she mm-hmm. is, you know, someone who is fragile because the man wants her to be fragile, doesn't want her to be strong. And so she says, you know, in the last paragraph, she said, look, how can women liberate themselves from these particular negative terms that they're associated with? And that liberation, she thinks, can only occur through a collective action, which we sort of talked about in our previous episodes, that women from all social classes, especially bourgeois women who want to, who's tend to stay with their own within their own class, need to come out and support women from all different classes, come together and demand an economic evolution of the feminine condition. And um, and only when, you know, women come together, this change can can occur. And that's when women will reach, achieve transcendence and break away mm-hmm. from that eminence. So we can say, you know, we're, we're getting there in some ways, like women have, uh, you know, are able to participate in the economic world. But at the same time, as you and I have discussed, there are still so many barriers that are put in place and they're very subtle. And there are still the ways to get women um, back into, you know, get them away from the workforce or, or one example being, you know, when you become a mother you know, it's not easy to get back to work. Or when you have a child, you're caring for that. It's not easy to participate in in things outside of the home life. And how can we now make sure that we are understanding of, uh, you know, all the roles that women take and still help them help them participate in the work life? For example, one way, like as, as we've seen through you know, this COVID crisis is that things can be done remotely, right? You don't need to fly over to Iowa if that's where your conference is. You can just participate in through your home. You know, you can tune in. So maybe technology in some ways could 
help women, <laughs> you know, balance it out or could help, I would say not just women, I just think more family in terms of families, because I think now both men and women should share the responsibility of children. And it is after the birth of children that women sort of suffer the penalty of um, the, the child penalty or wage penalty. So I think it shouldn't be just women. It should be the burden should be both on men and women and society should figure out a way where they can incorporate families more into the workforce. So then it will be more of a of an evolution or transcendence of the family with uh, with a changing uh, way of how our work culture is. Yeah, that's great, Faiza. Thank you so much. Um, I guess as we wrap up the book, maybe we can just share a takeaway or two from the book as a whole. I, I was thinking that probably one of the things that I will take away is is just, I, I guess, that foundational principle that's right there in the title of the book, The Second Sex. And we talked about this in, in the first episode, but something that I can really um, use practically in my life that now I will attribute to Beauvoir and and her insights is just catching myself when I notice a mental attitude of regarding a man with whatever man it is as primary and myself as secondary. I know that because I was trained in certain ways, I was trained that way to see a man's role as, you know, being a leader and a woman as auxiliary and supportive and um, really needing male approval even in relationships that should be peer relationships. I really appreciate Beauvoir pointing out that very fundamental way of thinking that we might even not realize we're doing of seeing the man as being the one and the woman being the other. And I want to make sure that I place myself at the center of my own life. And of course, it's, I mean, there's situations, of course, where it's appropriate that um, if I'm in a class with a male professor, he's obviously the leader in that context, right? If I have a man who, who is my boss at work, then of course, he's the leader. But if there's a peer relationship where it's one adult talking to another adult, I do sometimes find myself thinking of the male as being kind of the one and myself as the other because of, of my training. So I'm going to try to really identify those moments and push back against that and make sure that I place myself again as, as central and have that really solid at my core. And, and to maybe talk, you know, as I'm, as I'm talking, I'm realizing, I don't know that I've explicitly had that conversation with my children either with my daughters and my son to be aware of patriarchy in the world and aware that we have these psychological constructs that we've absorbed without even knowing we've absorbed them um, so that I can make sure that my son is aware that he may be talking to girls who see themselves as inferiors and that he needs to make sure that he has his eye out for that and that he is empowering in his language and his attitude toward girls and understands that they may be coming into conversations from that place. And, and that my girls obviously also just feel very, um, yeah, primary and central in their own lives and feel very confident entering any context with any other human being. 
that would be my big takeaway is just the whole, the, that whole concept wrapped up in the very title, which is mm. the second sex mm-hmm. for me. Yeah. What about you, Faiza? What are some of your conclusions or takeaways? Yeah, no, this was wonderful, Amy. Thank you for sharing. I, I like that you want to discuss this with your children and have them, not just you being observant about uh, moments where you feel that maybe patriarchy is, uh, you know, somehow everything that is embedded within us, like con- you confront it and, and oppose it, you know, and, and mm-hmm. use uh, what Boo say is to to take control of situations rather than be taken in by what the men are saying and and then teach it to your children as well so they also recognize these moments and are aware of it I think that's wonderful for me one thing you know reading this again I mean I've read it in various times in my life and and like I said it's just so every time I read it I just think of it as massive and meticulously researched and and this masterwork and this pillar of feminist thought you know and um Always, you know, there are things that I think, oh, why doesn't Bouvard talk about this? And sure enough, in the next chapter, yeah. she talks about it and, and talked about yeah. it so well. Um, there's so many things that she says. And it's just, uh, I mean, you could see why this book was revolutionary, because it was one of the earliest attempts to confront human history from a feminist perspective. It wasn't done before. So I feel like it's an essential read, even if it in some points feels outdated. But I think, you know, in reading it, I also started to realize how sort of our society is structured and why is it structured the way it is and how it sort of, you know, tries to keep women, especially women who are mothers, keep out, you know, and go back to the domestic sphere and not be involved in in social and work life. And how can we sort of change that? What can we put in place? What policies can be put in place? And I was reading about Sweden. Apparently, Sweden has much more better policies for including families or or having people do be easily be able to do part time, or even like, you know, between husband and wife, if they have a child, they can take a particular number of months off together and they can balance like, okay, I think it's 16 months or total. So they can do eight and eight or they could do 10 mm-hmm. and six, you know, they can divide amongst themselves. So they're like a lot of federal policy. I mean, of, of course, Sweden is a much smaller country, but I think like at least those examples are good to good to see and see how those societies work and how can we take in those elements and, and, and sort of use them in our society as well. And we don't have to think about federally. I mean, we can just think about, you know, California in general. Can we, how can we make California more family friendly? Um, you know, even though we do give paternity leave, a lot of men don't take it. Why is that? How can we encourage a culture where both partners, you know, take joy in staying at home and don't feel it as a burden as something that uh, affects their careers? Because now women are also right there staying in workforce longer and then getting married and then having children much later. So they also feel like, oh, now, you know, I will miss out on my promotion or miss out on the next step in my career because I had a child. Like not to feel that way, but to feel the joy in being a parent, being a mother, take that as a challenge. And um, and I was just thinking, you know, because last week or week before was the Nobel Prize week. And I was like, there's no prizes for motherhood. Why not? Right? <laughs> why is there no, why is there prizes, Nobel Prize for this and writing prize for that and grant for this and grant for that, but nothing for like being a good parent or being a good mm-hmm. family member or, or, or I was just talking to my mom, like even maintaining relationships uh, with your in-laws, with your own family, with your children, with your partner. I mean, that requires a lot of work and we don't appreciate that. Right. I mean, because, and, 
maybe we need to have awards for those things and maybe then we will appreciate like you know um uh, what can we do to to make this um i mean either you know like for humanity you know we say we always at the time of crisis is when we understand like oh we need to change like maybe when a time of crisis come when our birth rate is so low that we're like oh no what are we doing we're gonna stop you know humanity is, is going to die out and that's when we're going to give all these things to mothers and and parents <laughs> and benefits will come you know uh, like climate change right as soon as the our our uh, temperatures are going to rise so high that's when we're going to like do something about it right now we're just going to discuss and debate discuss and debate so i think it is at some point we need to think about what actions we want to take and maybe you know looking at how other countries have solved these problems or you know, would be something we need to sort of study more and incorporate. And for that, we, we not only need women to raise their voice, but also men to raise their voice, and especially men who are fathers to raise their voice. And I think that's when change would, would really occur when, when men say, no, we want to take our paternity leave, we want the full paternity leave, we want it to be paid leave, we want, you know, to spend time with our children, we don't want our weekends and all the time just about work, like there has to be family time, or we need, you know, the fathers need to spend time with their, with their, you know, children, also not just that it's responsibility of the mothers. And um, so yeah, I think I think only when the male voice rises, only then I feel like there would be some change. Otherwise, you know, I mean, I remember in my corporate world, like the men would take two days paternity leave and be back or or maybe a week. And if that's the standard, then everybody would follow that. Right. Especially if your if your executives follow that um, or or if your executive says, yes, I am taking leave. But then all the time is is emailing and pinging and this and that. Right. Uh, showcasing that they're still working because, you know, we value work so much and we really put no value in. Um, uh, we don't give it enough value the time that is spent with children or the effort we we think that this should be taken care of by someone else and and of course that person should not be seen or named or anything but that's that person mm-hmm. you know like we talked about that help is there so i think these things we need to confront in our society more and 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 Bouvar helped me help me see that um that we still have a lot of problems even though we claim that we have made a lot of progress since 1949 still have a mm-hmm. lot of problems and we still um, need to deal with those. And I'm so grateful for you, Amy, for, um, you know, setting up this patriarchy podcast and having us discuss this wonderful text. And I really, really hope that your listeners will give it a shot. And, and if this seems too, you know, philosophical or cumbersome, then check out her short story collection, The Woman Destroyed, which also talks about the same issues, but in in a, you know, in a fictional form, which also is really interesting. So yeah, Yeah, that's a great recommendation, Faiz. I'm really glad you mentioned that. And then just in general, thank you so much for spending the time reading this book again. (laughs) (laughs) I think you said your third time reading Beauvoir and um, just offering such great um, ideas. This really was neat. I have to just say, I this will be repeating what I said before, but this was really neat for me to have this conversation with you. Having our, we have a lot of overlap in our life experience and our point of view, but we have some really different things that we brought to right. this discussion. And so I learned a lot from you, and um, 
just so appreciate you being here. This was a ton of fun and I and I learned a lot. So thank you so much, Faiza, for being here. Thank you so much, Amy. Yes, I am really excited and I cannot wait to hear the rest of the episodes that you will yeah. be recording. I'm really excited. Thank you. <laughs> So that wraps up The Second Sex um, by Simone de Beauvoir. Um, And next time on our podcast, we will be reading another big seminal work in women's history. Um, This is a book that I've had on my bookshelf. I must admit, I've had it for years, but until now, I had never actually read. Um, It's The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan. And I would say if the second sex was the start of second wave feminism, then the feminine mystique was the engine that kept it running. Um, This is a must read classic that will help us understand women's situation in the United States in the 1960s. So see if you can find a copy or read some sections online before next week's discussion. And as always, even if you don't have time to read it, then you'll still learn from listening. So join us next time for the feminine mystique on breaking down patriarchy. 